Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 51 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 51, we are going to be talking very briefly about the upcoming meet in the PNW district uh, for uh, meet number three at the district level. It's going to be at NSA, although I think technically they're called NSC uh, these days. We're going to be doing a review of some material out of Hebrews, uh, chapters 11, 12, and 13. And then we're going to talk a bit about uh, how to set up a new team, not just from a perspective of, let's say, you're, you're an established church ministry and you're, you've got some additional quizzers. How do you form a new team with those new quizzers or reorganize your teams? But rather uh, from the perspective of you've never had a team before, you've never been in quizzing before, none of the, the youth that have decided to participate have ever even seen quizzing before. How do you go about setting up a new team in terms? of coaching strategies, quizzer strategies, mental sort of preparation uh, for uh, attending a meet and so forth. So with that said, let's uh, jump into some stuff about meet number three, which is upcoming in just about two days, a little bit over two days. So check-in time is Friday at 6 p.m. And when I say check-in time, that literally just means make sure you're at the church at 6 p.m. and have somebody, it doesn't have to be the coach, but have somebody from your church find me, Griffin, somewhere and just say hi uh, and say like, you know, I'm from so-and-so church or whatever. Uh, I'm going to be, you know, checking off uh, churches as, as they arrive. And so when you check in, it lets me know that, okay, great, they're here somewhere. I don't have to run around and see see if they're here. And then if, uh, if, a, if a church happens to be running a little bit late, we'll know that uh, pretty obviously. Keep in mind, uh, coaches and volunteers and drivers uh, that NSA is in Seattle. It is north of Seattle, which means that for, I think, pretty much all of the quizzing teams, you're going to be driving through uh, I-5 rush hour traffic in Seattle, which is non-trivial for our uh, Oregon uh, friends and family. Uh, you're going to be driving through uh, twice of it. <laughs> you, you get Portland and you get Seattle. So uh, just make sure that you leave early enough that you can arrive to the uh, quiz meet on time at or before 6 p.m., uh, for folks who have participated in adult league quizzing, there's been, you know, of course, an enormous amount of fun. There was a huge amount of fun, I think, had at the AQL quizzing on Saturday at Madras, uh, this last meet. Uh, I, there's just huge amounts of cheering and I think everybody had a great time. So I do want to encourage anybody who is even slightly interested in uh, participating in AQL to talk to Jeremy, uh, ideally before the meet, but even if you talk to him on Friday, he can get you on uh, the roster to be able to participate. Even if you don't have hardly anything memorized, even just more than just a verse or two, it's a really uh, fun experience to be able to be involved in that. So if you're a coach, former quizzer, just a, a volunteer, and you want to you know, see what the, the world looks like from the stage, uh, I encourage you to participate. And of course, uh, you know, quizzers, uh, and folks who are already signed up, uh, please pester those who are not to get them encouraged about participating. We're going to have a Saturday, uh, a short Saturday leadership meeting over lunch. It's not going to be very long. Just talking about things like Great West and a few other sort of housekeeping kind of things. And there, there is going to be a Saturday post meet dinner. 
but we don't have a location specifically picked out yet. That's going to be TBD and announced on Friday. It's just going to be something local, probably uh, do another pizza joint again or something uh, fairly easy that uh, everybody can uh, participate with if they so desire to. All right. Well, with that said, let's jump into our Hebrews review and we'll start off with chapter 11. So Scott, what are your thoughts about chapter 11? Chapter 11 is a fun chapter because it has, um, I mean, literally, I mean, literally a million global keywords, um, but it also has the repetition of the by faith section. And so it has lots of interesting aspects, quizzing wise, which are going to be fun to deal with. So it's a really long chapter, 40 verses, which will complicate quote questions. Actually, it won't complicate quote questions because there are no key verses except for Verses 1, 3, and 6. So it will not complicate quote questions, but it will definitely complicate chapter verse reference questions, as you might get stuck with a 20 or a 30 if you go too quickly. Um, And being a long chapter, it might be intimidating for people to memorize if you're not already memorizing the entire material, but there's going to be tons and tons and tons of interrogatives and multiple answers coming out of this chapter. Um, Yeah, I've got some other small tidbits, but why don't you give me your overall thoughts on the chapter first? Well, overall, um, chapter 11 of Hebrews is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Um, I, it's sort of like, I don't know, this is an, this is a massively crass way of describing it, but it's like a preview to a movie. So if, if the Bible is a movie, then like Hebrews chapter 11 is a preview to the entire story arc, right? Um, it basically takes, uh, you know, the whole idea of Christianity is faith, right? That's like the, at the, at the bedrock of, of its faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, right? And that, that is, that's sort of the cornerstone of all that is Christianity. And of course, the Bible is the inspired word of God that conveys that, that testament, the, both the Old and New Testament, uh, of God to us. And Hebrews 11 is essentially, I I wouldn't say the Cliff Notes version, but it's sort of, it's like the movie preview of this epic movie of the entire Bible, because we get to start with things like um, Cain and Enoch, and we talk about Sarah, and we talk about Abraham, and we talk about all of these different things that happen in the Old Testament as things are progressing through, as God is uh, working with Israel to bring about the place in time, the perfect perfect place in time for uh, Christ to come into the world and to redeem the world. And so, like, just from a, you know, spiritual theological perspective, I love uh, Hebrews 11. There are other chapters that have more, let's say, theological weight to them, more sort of emotion, spiritual, emotional impact upon me, uh, you know, uh, personally. But Hebrews chapter 11 for me is sort of that, that overall spans of like, it, it takes the entire narrative of, of the Bible and compresses it into, you know, just a handful of verses, just into the, the 40 verses that are there. So, um, that's sort of like, you know, my, my big picture kind of stuff. So, you know, I keep saying like, if you're going to memorize anything, 11 is definitely, uh, something to, to memorize just personally. 
Uh, regardless of how you do in, in quizzing, I think it's a, a wonderful, wonderful chapter to have in your uh, written on your heart for later in life. But here in, in now, uh, you know, kind of echoing the same thing, Scott, you said, I very much agree. Like, yeah, there are a million and a half uh, keywords or unique words uh, across the chapter. Uh, there's only you know, like what three uh, key verses, so it's uh, there's there's not going to be a lot of key verse specialists say sniping up of interrogative questions. So it's a huge opportunity for folks there. Uh, the whole by faith thing, like Scott said, it's everywhere. Uh, it's like half the chapter or something is uh, is uh, starts out by faith. So a lot of awesome opportunities here. It's fairly, despite the fact that there's a lot of by faiths, it's fairly easy to memorize um, because, of, again, of the, those unique words that are there, the, the phraseology. It's fairly, not plainly written, but it's straightforwardly written, I guess. is the, there, there isn't a lot of sort of jumbled up language uh, in the chapter. But um, beyond that, I mean, the, Hebrews 11 is also, I, I'd say, something that's, it's an illustration of something, well, how to say this? Let me try it again. Hebrews chapter 11 is a great example of why memorizing references while you memorize the material is so incredibly important, because you know there's going to be a whole bunch of bifaiths that are, uh, you know, key to uh, chapter key. And so, uh, you know, this would be a great place to be able to get your chapter memorizations down, your CVRs down, uh, memorize those references. So, I don't know. Scott, what are some of the details that jump out at you? So, you should expect most of the, most if not all of the by faith phrases to be written as a reference question. So, I, well, chapter verse reference or chapter verse reference multiple answer because there's so many in this chapter. Um, and... They're all – the majority of them are one verse away from each other, so you can't make a mistake on verse 30 versus – verse 31. That's hard to say. Verse 30 of verses verse 31. Um, and there also might be interrogative questions that start with by faith. So this was an internal discussion that the question writers and editors had uh, within PNW, um, which was, is there a better or we're really just better – way to write interrogative questions. Should you start at the by faith or should you deliberately start after the by faith? And the general consensus was um, either just randomly have whatever the question writers wrote starting at by faith or starting deliberately after the by faith phrase or have both. Um, so it's probably not good to deliberately start at by faith and never start after the by faith or vice versa. Um because most often, if there are similar phrases, there's a better way to write it as a reference question, which tests the material, but then doesn't unnecessarily make the, give the quizzer um, ambiguous material to start an interrogative or a multiple answer question. But here, um, there's not really a good way to do it because uh, the by faith phrase carries a lot of meaning, and um, it can be awkward to just start in right after the by faith phrase. Um, so. As a quizzer, you should be prepared for those interrogative and multiple answers to start both at the by faith and after them. There are um, lots of people in this chapter, and so there's lots of opportunity for who interrogative questions. And so I'd encourage you, if you end up getting stuck with a who interrogative question, try to maybe mentally go to this chapter first. There's going to be um, many, many places where there is um, a person asked about here. I remember from quizzing um, the word she 
is actually very, very rare in this text. There's only three she's in the entire material, and two of them are in this chapter. So that's those are little tidbits that I love to find because um, there's relatively few women talked about in the Bible. And in this material specifically, there are not very many at all. And normally if you jump on a pronoun, there's 50 of them, 30 of them. You've got no chance. But actually there's only a few here, and they all – can have really, really nice interrogative questions asked at them. So she considered him faithful who had made the promise in verse 11. She welcomed the spies in verse 31. And then late in First Peter, it has the phrase, she who is in Babylon. And so definitely expect questions to start at those she's. And um, based on whatever the next syllable is, you'll know exactly which one it will be. There are also lots of fun lists, which are going to obviously be multiple answers, but are going to require the quizzer to know them very well. So, for example, verse 32, I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah about David, Samuel, and the prophets. Um, you need to have the, that list nailed down because if you have to go through it more than once or twice, you may run out of time. And if you name any proper name um, that's not in that list, that's an incorrect answer. Um, so you have to be precise about that. Similarly, um, verse 33 and 34 have some very long lists um, that you may not have time in 30 seconds to quote through more than uh, once or twice. So it really helps to know them well, even though you can definitely expect them to be multiple answer questions. There's some fun chapter verse reference multiple answers at the end of 11. They were what? That's going to be a lot. And chapter 11 has a very rare case of an invalid question because of a homonym. Um, let me see if I can find the two occurrences. Yeah, verse 29 is the word past, P-A-S-S-E-D. And in verse 11, it has past, P-A-S-T. But those are pronounced the same way. And so if you have a one-word chapter reference on each of those, um, they happen to be out of context from each other those would both be invalid because the quizzer has no way audibly of knowing which one it is. And that's a very, very rare case because those homonyms may show up. I mean, there are homonyms all over the material, but they often show up as part of an interrogative question where when strung together with the other words around in the context, you know exactly where to go. And if you happen to just jump on the one word that's a homonym, well, that's your fault for jumping that fast. And that's, you just have to deal with it. But in this case, if it's the entire question, um, it would make it an invalid question. And I really have not run across that sort of thing at any other place that I can remember in my four years of quizzing or um, because it's rare to have homonyms be so perfectly fit for a one word reference question as this. I think that is, yeah, those are my thoughts that I can remember on chapter 11. So re remember in chapter, or sorry, not, not chapter, verse 23 of chapter 11, uh, Moses's, right? By faith, Moses's parents, uh, versus uh, verse 24, by faith, Moses. Uh, so it's very tight. It's, um, and quiz masters are going to pronounce Moses's just ever so slightly different. How would you pronounce that? I would definitely pronounce it three syllables. So Moses's. Yeah, Moses's. Um, it'll go pretty fast, but uh, it is definitely makes the the disambiguation between 23 and 24 absolutely key so be careful about that and if you start you know if you're especially if you're on a um well i guess it wouldn't be a, a cvr 
if you're one versus the other, just be careful about where, where you're answering from, uh, and be precise about it. Uh, then Scott, a question for you. So verse 20, not 20, uh, 33. So chapter 11, verse 33, who through faith, what, and you get a whole bunch of things after that, you know, for a multiple answer, Con- uh, conquered kingdoms, administrator, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions uh, uh, quench the fury of the flames and escape the edge of the sword. At what point would you end the question if it was, uh, who through faith, what? Um, I really ended at that first semicolon. So just conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised. I think it would be valid if you require more, but if you look, um, into verse 34, there's a few different kind of structures treated, right? So there's who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, semicolon, who shut the mouths of lions. Now you can definitely infer that it was also through faith that this happened. So I think it would fit with the first one um, if you want to write the question that way. So it goes on to say who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, semicolon, and then whose weakness was turned to strength. Um, So that's kind of a different structure again after that second semicolon. So again, you could infer that who through faith, whose weakness was turned to strength. It probably makes enough sense if you wanted to write all of verse 33 and 34 as a, um, a multiple answer altogether. Um, but I really, I'd keep it a little bit shorter than that and then throw in the additional wrinkle that actually, no, it's not an additional wrinkle. The phrase who through faith appears three times, but in different chapters. So this would be um, who through faith, what would be a chapter reference multiple answer. If that phrase occurred elsewhere in this chapter, it would have to be a chapter first reference multiple answer. And then the only text that you could require would be from this single verse. But that's not the case here. Yeah. So I'm I'm really on the fence on this. So this would be sort of like I'm just going to ask whatever is on the card as a quiz master. But as a question writer, I'm really torn because... Uh, I think the last semicolon where it's, uh, well, I, no, I guess second to last semicolon, whose weakness was turned to strength and everything after that from 34. I think it's like, yeah, I think you can squint and say that that's, you know, as a result of, of who through faith, but I think you have to, I, I don't know. This is very subjective, which means I don't like it, but I feel like you have to put on your interpretation hat to get there. Um, whereas, you know, who through faith, uh, all the way up through the first semicolon is very obviously non-interpretive. That's all related, right? Then the problem for me is that second section, right? Like who shut the mouths of lions, quench the fury of the flames and so forth. And it's like, well, it's really just that one word who, right? You could absolutely like, like if the, if the translator of, of the NIV or and actually it's not one person, it's a, a group of people. But if, if the translators of this particular NIV version decided to omit the second who there, then that second block of lines would, would very unambiguously be you know, in, in scope for who through faith. But because that second who is there, is like, well, is it, is it a, um, is it an, a, is it a poetic who in the sense of like a poetic and from like Genesis where like a lot of the, 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 the verses start with the word and, I mean, maybe not translated in the NIV, but from the original, uh, Hebrew, it, it, it a lot of these were, uh, verses start with the, with and. It's like, and this happened and that happened, right? And it's all, it's almost like a poetic device. 
Um, is who a poetic device here, or is it saying, okay, these first things were through faith. The second thing, set of things, uh, after the second who here is a recounting of events, not necessarily through faith. Um, and again, that's where I really hate the ambiguity of like, well, now I have to make a subjective, you know, decision, not ruling. I have to make a subjective decision about that as a question writer. And then, yeah, so then, so, I mean, really what it comes down to you, I guess, you know, maybe you just have to make an arbitrary call as a question writer, but then when it comes to the quiz, the quiz master has it fairly easy. You just ask what's on the card, you require what's on the, uh, what's on the card. But then if, you know, the question writer made one decision versus, versus another, is there any opportunity for a challenge? Sure. Right. Um, so I'll say that. As a question writer, I am definitely more apt to write questions that are harder because I will not artificially try to make them easy. So if I think that there's a good multiple answer here that just happens to contain two verses, I'm just going to write that. But if I was writing who through faith what from verse 33, I'm I'm stopping it after gained what was promised. I'm not writing it further, and I think that I would more often lean towards writing it further. So the fact that I would cut it off there means I, I don't think a lot of question writers are going to be writing the rest of verse 33 and verse 34 as additional multiple answers to this. Um, but that said, if as a quiz master you come across this, I would just ask it because I think um, it'd be really hard in the moment to call it just invalid, right? Um, and so I think it's open to challenge, but I don't really know of a challenge that would sway me, right? Because the challenge would be just what you said, you know, why are they using a different different structure here? They're going to they have a semicolon and then another who, but not a through faith here. So we're definitely assuming a lot um, when they could have just omitted the semicolon and the who and made it very clear, right? I think that's a strong argument, but I don't think it's strong enough to make the, to consider the question to be invalid. Um, and so I can't think of a challenge that would be good enough to change my mind, if that makes sense. Sure. What if it, what if it was what if it was the other way around? So what if the you know shut the mouths of lions and so forth was included? The quizzer jumps answers correctly up through the first uh, semicolon. There's a long pause and then they continue to quote, but they they miss like you know quenched or something, which is a unique word. Uh, and then the challenge pops up and says, well, you know everything after that first semicolon should not have been required. What do you do? I don't think there's a strong enough argument to um, accept that challenge. I'm definitely falling back to how it's written unless something is clear to me. Because, um, I mean, both of those challenge challenges aren't presenting me with new information, right? And so, like, the first time that this comes up on my screen as a quiz master, I might realize immediately, oh, I've seen this, and eh, I probably wouldn't have written it this way, but it's here now. And I'm not going to be making that judgment call on validity um, in the middle of a quiz, right? Because I... Right. I definitely wanted to stay away from, like, I know the teams that are in the quiz, I know the situation, the potential gravity of the question, maybe specialists that are still in the quiz, who knows what I'm, I consciously or unconsciously know. Um, and um, I think it's very hard to be 100% unbiased in a situation like that. And so as a quiz master, I'm going to ask the question as presented, unless I'm ve I very strongly think it is invalid. Yeah, yeah. So on something yep. that I just might have a difference of opinion on interpretation or question writing philosophy, I'm not just ditching something, ditching a question because of that, right? Um, it's not going to be, oh, I don't like this. I, I, I'm going to say, do I think that this is invalid, right? Yeah, yeah, agreed. Well, any other ideas on 11? 
Um, while we're talking about it, verse 34, I think there's actually a really difficult – there's a low chance that multiple answers are going to be written there. I think you really have to work hard to write a multiple answer. You're not going to write who became what. I mean maybe you're going to write that from the end of verse 34. Um, but there's really not a way to write who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword as a multiple answer. One thing that I that you can do, which it's completely valid, I just don't do it, is if there's a long list of answers, you write the first one as the question and then just ask for the rest of them. So you could write, shut the mouths of lions, what? Right? Well, to me, there's not really a reason to work that hard to write a multiple answer question specifically, there's plenty of ways that you can write interrogative questions to test the same material. And I don't think a multiple answer would be the best question type to use. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. But we're moving on to 12 and 13, right? Yes, indeed. All right. So 12 is also long. It is, um, it flows very nicely um, from chapter 11. And in some ways you could feel that verses 39 and 40 almost belong in chapter 12. Um but 12, conversely from chapter 11, is very, very um, key, which I feel weird saying because it's just us deciding what should be key. Um, but let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 11 verses in, in 12 are key. So again, if you are a Kiefer specialist memorizing only key verses, this, a chapter like this is an awesome one to just decide to memorize the rest of the chapter in addition. So out of a 29-verse chapter, you're going to have 11 down. You just have to memorize 18 more, and then you can see how you like the world of um, reference questions. And if you're like me, you will find that it is a lot of fun and that lots of people don't really – you will have significantly less competition on them compared to Kiefer's questions and interrogative questions. Um, but there's lots and lots of – very, very memorable material here. I think it's an easy chapter to memorize. There's not there's not a lot of confusing concepts or antiquated word structures or anything. Um, so yeah, this is a fun chapter. It's got it's going to have all kinds of question types. Um, you're going to see lots and lots of questions from this chapter. I remember it being an easy chapter to write questions on. Um, so that kind of just means the questions flowed. They're they're going to be less awkward. They're going to be uh, yeah clear. Um, there are, there's not a lot of repetitive material in this chapter. There is a therefore from verse one, and I would encourage quizzers to look up the phrase right hand. It appears six times in the material, and there are slight different ways, um, that it's talked about. So like in Hebrews one, three, it says right hand of the majesty in heaven, but in Hebrews 8, 1, it says right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Likewise, in 12, 2 here, it says right hand of the throne of God. But in 10, 12, it says right hand of God. Um, now, this would be tough, Griffin, if someone is answering from 8, 1, but says the phrase right hand of the throne of God. Do you think that that is enough to put them in chapter 12 and out of context for the purposes of answering from chapter 8? Um, I think that would be a, a tough call to make, but it could happen. Um, so, so wait a minute. So if they if they are answering from eight and they say the right hand of the throne of God, correct? No, because well, so no. Actually, sorry, sorry, I said that backwards because I think the the differences between eight and twelve are very small. But let's say they're in chapter ten where the answer is the right hand of God, and they say the right hand of the throne of God. The right hand of the throne of God. So they're they're they're. They're supposed to be in ten. They and they say the right hand of the throne of God. I think 
unfortunately they're incorrect, but but not because of context. I think they've provided an incorrect answer um, because the right hand of God is different than the right hand of the throne of God. So the right hand of God, you could interpret as more um, like meaning based, like the authority that you have, whereas the right hand of the throne of God is more positional. Um, well, but yeah, I mean, I think theologically that's true. I'm thinking of it more sort of objectively. Uh, you know, if you imagine God as a person, uh, you know, which of course is theologically wrong, but let's just pretend, uh, <laughs> let's say, you know, a God as a human being who has a physical right hand and then the throne, the right hand of the throne. Uh, so replace God with King, right? Um, that way maybe we can imagine it a little bit better. Uh, the right hand of the king is an actual, you know, hand with fingers and flesh and bone and so forth. And the right hand of the throne of the king is essentially the, a position next to the throne. It can, it, 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 it's probably more a position of power rather than a physical location, but practically you could look at it as a physical location standing to the right of the actual chair. So if the king was not there, the right hand of the throne of the king still is. Whereas if the right hand of the king, if the king is gone, the right hand of the king is also gone, right? Um, so anyway, very convoluted way of basically saying, I think those, the, the, those two th objects, those two things are different things. And therefore, if you're answering right hand of the throne of God for, for 1012, I think you've provided an incorrect answer. Huh. I think I would actually think about it completely opposite from you. I think I okay. would call them I, – I think they are not incorrect, but I would call them incorrect for being out of context. <laughs> Andrew, but, well, here's the thing, though. Are they, though? They've only provided really one word, throne. I mean, this goes back to the whole finish the verse thing, right, where the first four words are the exact same, but the fifth word is different. And some people will say that Quizzer has only provided one word, which cannot take you out of context. But in my head, they've provided me five consecutive ones. So in this case, if they say the right hand of the throne of God, they have said one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight consecutive words word perfectly from a different context. Yeah, yeah. The problem being that none of them are particularly unique and in meaning are very similar to the context that they should be in. Right. So it's definitely right. it murkies the waters very quickly. Yeah. Well, this goes back to the I, I think the whole idea of, of the rule book saying one word can't put you out of context is unfortunately the way it's written is very ambiguous and leads to situations exactly like this. Right. I think the intent of that rule has been uh, overcome by the language used to implement the intent of that rule, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And so we're left in these kind of weird situations like that, right? Where like, like generally if that rule, if that one little tiny phrase didn't exist in the rule book, then I would absolutely say, yes, they're out of context, right? Now I would also say they're providing an incorrect answer, <laughs> right? But, um, but the, the, the whole thing of incorrect answer requires, you know, interpretation where the out of context does not, the out of context is much more like, okay, they're just clearly, you know, in 12 versus 10. Um, but that's the problem with this one little tiny phrase in the rule book, uh, with no examples or sort of, you know, uh, nuance to that particular rule sort of gets us in the situation where it's like, well, are they really out of context? And it, then, then it kind of is up to the quiz master. And, and I hate that. It's sort of like pass interference. Uh, yes, I think even one example would make this very, 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 very clear <laughs> of like why, exactly. why, why that exactly. one line is in there. I mean, I think the poster child for why that was written was in John, the contraction I'm, um, is actually a global unique word. And there was 
the desire that a quizzer who just mistakenly either slurs or or pronounces I am as I'm would not be then out of context, right? For something right. that that minor. Um yeah. But let's let's see here. What else in chapter twelve? I guess sorry. I cut you off. You're, you probably had additional thoughts. You were just asking me follow-up questions online. No, actually, I don't think so. I mean, other. I mean, my general thoughts are very similar to yours. It's a shorter chapter um, than uh, chapters ten and eleven in terms of the four chapters upcoming for this meet. So, um, you know, a, a chapter uh, ten is thirty-nine, eleven is forty, this one's twenty-nine, thirteen is twenty-five, so even slightly shorter. Um, there's a fair number of unique words uh, across chapter 12, so um, it's going to be fairly easy to write some tight questions there. Uh, but everything else that you said, I totally agree with, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, if you're a keyverse specialist, just try to memorize the rest of the chapter. You'll open yourselves up to a lot of other opportunities, specifically reference questions. Um, so, and of course, you know, for everybody, uh, memorize references along with the material. It will give you a huge boost in your ability to, uh, answer various different question types. All right. So chapter 13, um, <clears throat> The the final chapters in letters are always very interesting because they're kind of a hodgepodge, but they can also be fun because um, they're going to be very different because they're hodgepodge. So we get that hodgepodge starting right around, uh, I guess, the paragraph change in verse 20. So there's some interesting, unique words, and um, like Timothy's only mentioned once, um, Italy's only mentioned once. So you get those proper nouns, people, and location that can really help your mind have a foothold on where you are in the material. This one is also very, very key within P&W. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 of the 25. So, I mean, as a keyverse quizzer, if you memorize all of chapters 12 and 13, there's not a ton of extra work for you. And being the last two ch- last two chapters of new material, I think you could make some, make some waves. Um, that would be, yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, if you are a keyverse only quizzer, if you do the work to add 12 and 13, oh my goodness, um, I think you could be very surprised at um, how much easier things seem for you results-wise. Um, there's a lot of, yeah, I don't know what else to say. There's less global unique words in this chapter than in the previous two, but there's still a good amount scattered throughout. There's good opportunities for um, chapter verse reference questions when you see like do not or let us. I'm not seeing a therefore here. Um, never will I what from verse five is a multiple answer construct that you do not like, Griffin, but that's going to be a multiple answer because that phrase appears only in this verse. Um, I thought that never will appeared in the previous chapter too, but it doesn't. Um, oh, that's the cannot be shaken that I was. Oh, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Um, yeah, but 13... I like ends ends of letters. They it's a kind of a change of pace and a nice sum up. Yeah, agreed. So it's it's fairly a short material, right? Twenty five verses. So definitely encourage everybody to memorize everything. This also chapter thirteen. Again, I I've mentioned this before. I would not. I mean, obviously everybody's a little different uh, in terms of how they prepare, a little different in how they memorize and and all that kind of stuff. I would never encourage anyone short of rather significant scientific evidence. I would never encourage anyone to do anything before attempting to memorize the material, you know, however it is that you do that memorization. 
uh, you know, whether it's just in your head or if it's, uh, you know, orally or if, if it's uh, written and then oral or whatever, however you do it to get the material down first and then try additional things to sort of cement that material. Uh, and so one of the things I'd, I'd mentioned in the past was writing questions on uh, a, a chapter as a great way to sort of help solidify the material, not formally necessarily, but just even just looking at the material and thinking, how would a question writer write questions about that? Uh, in some cases that, well, I think in all cases, that's usually helpful to spend a little bit, a bit of time thinking about that. Doing that, of course, after you memorize the material or, or have a good chunk of the material memorized. But then, uh, it, I think in chapter 13, there are a few cases where it sort of stands out even more, where thinking about this, causing yourself for at least a little bit of time to think about chapter 13 from the perspective of a question writer will help you out in terms of the expectation of questions that will come from this chapter. Uh, so like verse, you know, uh, verse eight of 13, uh, clearly screams that it's going to be a multiple answer question, right? Um, and other things like, you know, verse 24, verse 25 and so forth. There, there are verses out of here where as, as you're memorizing them, you're, you're memorizing words and the meaning is around the words. But then if you kind of come back and look at them from a question writer's perspective, they kind of jump out at you of like, okay, clearly this is the, this is like the first one, two or three questions that'll, that'll get written out of this particular verse. Um, Scott, when you were preparing, did, did that ever help you at all? Writing questions? Yeah, either writing questions or, I mean, not necessarily formally, but um, even just sort of considering the questions that would come from a particular verse. So my my study habits were pretty unique, but what I would ever, what I would always do when I dealt with new material is I would do, I would not try to memorize it. So I wrote questions on it. Um, I wrote unique words onto their own little note cards. I wrote um, the verse onto um, its separate note card. Yeah, I voice recorded it, so um, this is in the, the day and age of cassettes, but I would um, record my own – I would read it into a cassette. So I, I viewed both the reading, recording of it onto a cassette but then also listening to it later as forms of study. So I do all of those things for roughly six days. Um, and then the day before quiz practice, I would try to memorize the material. And um, I could always qu- – quote it quite well after those six days of just doing stuff with it. Um, and that always worked really, really well for me. And then I also had, um, so because I had dealt with the material in so many ways from writing questions, writing the verses onto cards, writing the global unique words onto cards and recording myself into a cassette tape and then listening it back once at the end of each week, when I would try to memorize the mater- the new material the day before quiz practice, um, I found it to be very, very easy like easy relative to if I just tried to grab new material and start memorizing it. And the way I would memorize it is I would read it through and then hide the material and try to say as much as I could remember of it until I had to peek and then just rinse and repeat until it's done and then review it like crazy. Um, But I found that dealing with the material for roughly six days in all of these different ways and then trying to memorize it was quite easy. And then once I had a good handle on the memorization, I had all of these study aids that I could easily pick up so that if there was a day where I'm like, you know what, I don't want to quote two chapters, five chapters, whatever it is in review, but I'll listen to it for half an hour or I'll go through 25 global unique words or something. I could just pick up each of those study aids that I had made kind of as a form of study. All right. Very cool. 
All right. Well, that is chapters 11, 12, and 13, which will uh, combine with chapter 10 to be the 50% of the material that we quiz on at the upcoming meet in just a little over two days over at NSA. So with that said, let's kind of jump into our final topic for the show today, which is basically strategies for starting up a new team. So this is inspired because of the really awesome, great news that we have a new church uh, joining PNW Quizzing. Uh, well, it's actually a church that had been involved in PNW Quizzing ages ago, probably 20 years ago or something like that. Uh, but they are back now re-involved in the program, uh, completely new people, uh, none of whom have ever really seen quizzing or done anything with quizzing. Uh, you know, they've heard of quizzing and that sort of stuff. And obviously we've done our best to try to, uh, you know, tell them everything we can about quizzing and answer their questions and so forth. But they're coming into this quiz meet in a couple of days, completely fresh, having not like the quizzers have never even seen quizzing. They're only go based uh, d doing this based on what they've heard, what they've read from the rule book and, and other sort of articles from the PNW quizzing org website and so forth. So we wanted to, you know, while we are very excited that they're uh, getting back involved in the program, we want to talk a little bit about what are some of the things that you can do to help prepare if you are in that sort of scenario, being a brand new team uh, coming into this environment. And we're going to kind of look at it from a coaching perspective and then also a quizzing perspective. Like what are the things that coaches can do and what are the things that quizzers can do? So um, Scott, why don't we flip those around and actually start with quizzers? What are, what are some ideas that like, you know, kind of hearkening back from your quizzer days, what would you imagine would be if a quizzer who has never quizzed before has never seen quizzing before and more than that is actually showing up to a team or showing up to a quiz with a team that has never experienced quizzing before either so it's not like you know in most cases a rookie quizzer is usually put on a team with a captain and maybe a co-captain who have been quizzers the previous year who can sort of explain how things are working and so forth but in but instead you, you imagine you're the captain of a team and none of you have experienced quizzing at all. Uh, what are some of the things that you would want to do to prepare both prior and in the moment? I think one thing that's very, very helpful is to have an I to be given. So this isn't something you can really gain on your own, but be given an idea what varying levels of knowledge of the material will get you points wise. Um, because if you just observe quizzing, you might observe the very best quizzers in the district, and you might observe um, other quizzers in the district. And it really gives you these single um, siloed data points onto what is possible or required. Um, but if you're kind of given some, given an idea of, okay, I've memorized one chapter and without references, and if I quoted it to you, you'd have to say again a bunch, versus all the key verses, word perfect, but no alphabetical list of the finished questions versus, and just going to say like, oh, that's maybe a half question quiz. That might be two and a half questions a quiz. You know, um, I think that would be very helpful because, I mean, this is, might be true in life as well, but I think people can be very disappointed if their experience is a far deviation from their expectations. Um, and so if you set expectations well, um, you give the quizzer the kind of the ability and the power to decide um, how much do I want to study to get a certain kind of results, but not you don't want to have them 
study to a level, expect certain results, go to a quiz meet, and then get far, far below them. I think that would be a very poor experience for a quizzer. And so that kind of general idea would be very, very helpful. Um, And then one thing that I know you have in the notes, don't sweat the details, but one of the details that I think can be very jarring for a quizzer are quiz master prompts and what's required of you. So either have the coaches prepare the quizzers for all the possible prompts, like what is your question, quote is complete, um, or the blank stare of more because you haven't finished the reference on a quote question, something like that. So either prepare your quizzers that like these are the different prompts and this is what you have to do to fulfill them, or just prepare them like the quiz master may prompt you for something, and if you don't know, it's totally fine. And like at least prepare them for that. Um, and I know as a quiz master, there were times where I could tell the quizzer had no idea what was required of them after a prompt that I gave. And I would always, like once their time was up and they probably got it wrong, I would try to soften it as much as possible and you know just say like, oh, you know, it's no problem. You got some of it right. You didn't quite get all of it right, but it's fine. Because I don't want that to be a really bad experience. And I think it could be when um, it's something that they didn't know about was required of them. And then it was required of them, which is very different from, well, I have to know the material. I jump on something, some material that I don't know, and it's kind of expected, right? Um, I think those would be two of the biggest things because you don't want to feel stupid on the stage. Um, and the, both of those things can help um, mitigate that. Yeah, totally. I would add to that excellent list something that might be impossible, but try for it anyway. Be okay before the meet starts with looking stupid. Like, like, obviously you don't want to go up there and, you know, act stupid. You don't want to, you, you'd want to give your best effort, you know, and, and, you know, take it seriously and, and do the best that you can. But be okay if something doesn't go your way. If you goof up, it, it's okay to goof up. Uh, you know, when, when, you know, everybody understands, like if you're showing up and you've, you're a complete rookie, your team is a rook is, is completely filled with rookies. Your coaches are rookies. Your church is a rookie uh, church. It's completely understandable if you're going to show up and mess something up, right? Uh, if you're going to go up there and not necessarily know exactly what the protocols are or something, somebody calls timeout and you kind of look around and go and, well, what do we do now? Or something like that. Right. Um, not knowing, well, yeah, I shouldn't actually, you know, step off the stage or something during a timeout unless I'm being subbed or something like that. There's, there's these sort of protocols, uh, that, that, that are there. And if you don't know and you, you mess up, it's really not the end of the world. Um, but it may, and, and honestly, nobody is going to be judging you. Uh, you know, it's a wonderful thing about quizzing. It's, it's a wonderful environment. It's very, it's a very supportive environment. So I think the, the biggest hurdle there is really sort of self judging rather than, than what anybody is going to judge on you. Um, so give yourself permission to make mistakes, right? Um, go in there and say, you know, I'm going to give it my best try, but, Give yourself the okay to say, like, because I am trying, I am going to make mistakes, and that's just going to be a factor of it. I would rather have somebody go in there and, you know, try 100%, be okay with making mistakes, and make several mistakes than somebody somebody being too, like, a little bit too apprehensive about jumping and participating because they're worried about making mistakes and worried about kind of looking silly and therefore not really engaging and not really having the participatory experience. Um, so I just say like, give yourself permission to kind of 
be a rookie, right? Give yourself permission to make mistakes. And I think you'll enjoy the process a whole lot more. And honestly, like I'll, I'll say it again, like no one will think less of you if you're a rookie going in there and you make a, you know, a crazy mistake, like, like you're going to get supported by everybody who's there. So it's a, it's a wonderful, a wonderful environment for that. Yeah. I got nothing to add. Well, then in terms of coaching, there are a couple of uh, coaching strategies that, you know, you can, you can put into play. Obviously the, the biggest coaching strategy of all is consistent memorization, right? Um, that's whatever you can do for your quizzers to help encourage them to be consistent in their memorization uh, schedule, whatever that happens to be, right? You know, if it's nothing more than just read the chapter, hopefully it's more than that. But even if it's just that, make sure it's at least consistent. If it's, I'm going to memorize, you know, 10 or 15 or whatever verses from each chapter, or I'm going to do this chapter and this chapter at 100%, whatever those strategies happen to be, try to encourage consistency of like, what are, how much time are you putting in? When are those times going to happen each day? Uh, Encouraging that consistent participation in the prep uh, process for quizzers is going to be incredibly important. In terms of organizing the teams, there are a lot of competing theories about what makes the most sense. Most of these are from established teams. So there are churches that have several quizzers and several teams and uh, have been around for years and years and years, and they go back and forth on what are, what is, the, what is the strategy this year for how we're going to organize teams? And uh, some coaches feel like the best way to organize their teams is, uh, kind of mixing this, the, the capabilities of everybody together. So all of their teams are basically equal. Others believe much more in, uh, heavily stacking. So you have, if you have 10, you know, uh, quizzers, your top five will be on team one. Your second five will be on team two. Others kind of do a striping effect where they might front load one team or another, but they'll kind of mix, uh, third and fourth chairs, that kind of thing. There's all kinds of different ways to kind of set up these teams. And honestly, I think there's value and validity in all of those ways. I think it's really sort of the governing principle as a coach is to say, like, what organization of these teams is going to cause the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses. And that's going to be different for each of your teams because each of your quizzers is a different human being, right? So what works for you for you and your teams is going to be very, very different than what works for somebody else's uh, quizzers and their teams. The, the other thing that I would encourage consideration of, uh, and this is of smaller consideration, but I wouldn't try to build up a team of five if you can avoid it. The reason, especially if you're a rookie, you know, coach, it's, I would say, you know, given the choice between, say, you know, three teams uh, of, say, uh, a fewer number of quizzers than a full stack versus, say, only just two teams of 10, right? I think you're going to be better off with, say, three teams instead of two teams of 10. The reason being is every quizzer will have more opportunity to uh, jump and participate in quizzes because you're not dealing with the sub situation. And then also as a coach, you're not having to, you know, worry about that whole aspect of quizzing, right? Uh, in terms of like, when do I sub? How do I sub? Who starts? What chairs are they on? That kind of stuff kind of gets removed from the equation uh, to some degree. So again, like if you're a rookie coach, keep things simple, especially with a team that uh, where everybody's up on the stage, everybody gets a chance to uh, uh, be able to participate that way. The other thing as for a coach, and this is really sort of a coach and quizzer sort of thing, a bit of advice, and it's going to be really difficult to do, 
which is uh, set realistic expectations. And this kind of goes to what Scott was talking about at the very beginning. Setting those realistic expectations is important, but really hard to do if you've never seen quizzing before. Um, So in a sense, it's almost like maybe you set some expectations, but don't put a lot of weight in them until after you've experienced your first uh, quiz meet. Um, because, I mean, then there's going to be something where, like, you, you go through the first quiz meet, you, you're on the drive home, and then you're kind of like, okay, now I understand how this is going to be. It's sort of like in, tra- you know, I was in track and field uh, in high school, and the very first meet that I went to, like, right before the very first meet that I went to, I was just thinking, like, I have no idea how I'm going to compare to, you know, do I, am I, am I going to be upset if I don't get a ribbon? Am I going to be upset if I come in in the last third? Like, I have no idea what's going to be considered good until after I showed up to the meet, participated in the full meet, and then was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, if I can be in the top half, then I'll be considered you know, not too bad. And then I can sort of gauge where, you know, I, I should feel good or bad about my performance. So in a sense, it's almost like you almost have to like set expectations to not have expectations until you have the basis to be able to do those things. I don't know. Does, uh, Scott, does that make sense? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it's hard for me to think of it from a coach perspective because I never ran a program or, um, yeah. And it's hard to, it's hard to decide what's most important because I think a lot of it isn't um, in the grand scheme of things, like even team construction um, right right off the gate. Because I think right off the gate, you want to make sure how um, to manage that the experience for your quizzers so that they don't all bolt if it's not exactly what they were expecting, right? So I think the setting of expectations is probably your most important thing as a coach. Yeah, yeah, and that's the biggest thing. I think I think. When I say don't sweat the details, it's 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 almost like go in with the prep that you have with the goal of saying I'm going to have fun at this at this meet. That's my goal. Not to do well, not to place anywhere. If if you do, that's great, that's wonderful. And I'm not saying, you know, go in there and don't try your best, right? Like absolutely show up to the meet and quiz as good as you possibly can, coach as good as you possibly can. Uh, do every, you know, participate at a hundred percent of what you're capable of doing, but basically don't make any outcome of the meet a goal except for having fun until you have some kind of guidance based on experience to be able to make some kind of realistic goal later. Because I think there's so much that is going to be overwhelming at the very first meet that. It, and and ultimately, at the end of the day, it, it really doesn't matter because I mean, really, what what's the point of quizzing? It's it's to encourage the memorization of scripture uh, through the fun of the competition, right? So if you're not having fun, it's sort of it's failing. So I wouldn't want to you know encourage anybody to set any kind of expectation that will inhibit them having fun, whether that's an over expectation or an under expectation. Sure, but you can still not set expectations, show up to each meeting and get last, and um, it not be a good experience for that reason. You know, even oh, if Oh, yeah, you... absolutely. Yeah. Right? So I think, but, yeah. But, I mean, that's where I'm saying, like, like, you know, prepare, you know, memorize as much as you can, prepare and practice as best you can, uh, show up to the meet and participate at 100% of your capability, right? Um, and, yeah, if you end up, you know, coming in dead last, you know, that's, that's probably not going to feel all that great, but don't feel bad about it. I mean, it's your very first meet, right? Um, these things happen. 
Um, and honestly, you know, if you've got a hundred quizzers, there's going to be, there has to be somebody who comes in, you know, in a hundredth place. It's just the nature of mathematics. So it doesn't mean you didn't do well. It just means that, uh, it, that's the placement of, of folks that, that, that were there. Right. So, um, the, the biggest thing is just to, to, to show up and with the best capability of doing well and do as best as you can and enjoy the process. Yep. And I think for people running the program, like you and I, um, you want to ask yourself the question, let's say that the quizzers do memorize things and have some knowledge about quizzing, even if it's crazy basic and same with the coaches. Um, and then they make say con B, they should be able to get something right. And if they're not able to get questions because of some knowledge about the competition or something, then I think we've failed to some extent. Right. Um, Oh yeah. Completely agreed. Cause the teams at the very bottom and the quizzers at the very bottom getting zeros often haven't studied at all, right? Um, and so if there's a new team that is in that spot because of something about the rules or the definitions or the terms or the, the structures, then you know that's what we want to make sure they have a basic knowledge about because there's so many finer points of quizzing, which is how you get from being like ninth individual to sixth individual or from second place team to first place team that a new team has no need to worry about at all. Right. Um, and it's fine. It's fine if they learn that organically over time, um, which is exactly what I did, but I was, I knew enough to get questions close enough to how much I'd studied right out of the gate, which I think is a good bar. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, any other last parting brainstormy thoughts for a new team? Um, I think for the new team, write down anything you have questions about and ask someone. And then on the flip, yes. and then on the flip side, everyone who's an experienced coach should ask the new team three times during the meet, like, do you have any questions? And make it very easy for them to ask the questions. Yeah, that's a great bit of advice. And for anybody listening, of course, you can at any time, whether you happen to be a brand new team in PNW or, you know, a team that's been around for a long time in PNW. Or if you have nothing whatsoever to do with P&W and you're in an entirely different district or you're even sort of quizzer curious uh, in some area of Canada and the U.S., uh, you can email us with questions about anything that we've discussed or anything that we haven't discussed, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at iq at cbqz.org. So that's IQ for Inside Quizzing at cbqz.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will say God bless to everybody, and I will see the PNW folks in a couple of days. See you all later. <laughs>